my second day on the campus at the university that I, that I went to, I had a coach. Um, his name won't be disclosed, but he said, Walter Atkins, you're here for two reasons, right? The first reason that you're here is to get an education. And he held up a number two, right? The second reason that you're here is to play football. And he held up a number one, right? So that particular conversation set the actual tone for the rest of my college, <laughs> the rest of my college career. Have you ever read a good book that was thought provoking and wanted to talk about it with your friend? Well, you've come to the right place because that is what we do here. Welcome to the Bruz Bookshelf with your host Lenny Gibbons and Walter Atkins, a Real Talk book review podcast where we give you raw commentary on the thoughts about the content. Enjoy. In this podcast, we will be covering Chapter 7, The Conveyor Belt. Today, we'll be joined by a special guest, high school classmate of my co-host Walter at Blanche Ely High School in Pompano Beach, Florida, where he was all-county linebacker, which led him to earn a scholarship to play at the University of West Virginia, his dad, alma mater, where he earned all Big East three years in a row. Following his dad's footsteps, he played the new Zeta chapter of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated. In 2011, he was drafted by the Chicago Bears, went on to play for the Jacksonville Jaguars and the New York Giants. While playing in the NFL, he was positioning himself for life after football and earned his MBA from the University of Miami. Currently, he coaches youth football in South Florida and has several different business ventures and run a nonprofit organization, the JT3 Foundation. It is my pleasure to welcome our special guest, our frat brother, Mr. JT Thomas. Woo! Oh, man. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you, Lenny. I really appreciate that. Hey, man, no problem, bro. It's probably the best introduction I've ever had. (laughs) I really appreciate it a lot, man. It's it's truly an honor to be here and to be able to speak speak about something I'm very passionate about. You know, that's uh, youth development, you know, uh, the athlete, sports, business in general. Um, uh, It's a pleasure to be here today. Cool. Hey, Walt. Some of the people that listened to our first podcast, they wanted to know a little background about who you are. And, you know, that's one thing that we didn't do in our first podcast. You want to give a little background about who you are? Yeah. So I'm uh, Walter Atkins Jr., uh, hailing from Pompano Beach, Florida. I earned a football scholarship to the University of Toledo while I played defensive back. Uh, Went on to get my master's degree from the University of Toledo. Uh, worked in corporate America for several years, and then um, now currently I own the asphalt paving company down here in South Florida where we employ. Uh, I have seven to eight employees, and I'm also a member of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated across 2008, the great 08. <laughs> and uh, so a quick story actually about me and JT, man. Um, in 2008, when we both crossed the same exact year, he crossed in West Virginia, and I crossed in uh at the university of toledo i hadn't seen jay for at least about two or three years you know but just so happened that we both was online together at different times in the same district so the next time that i see him was at ohio state in the kitchen of one of the bruh sauce at ohio state 
And obviously, we're doing broad things. We're talking information, et cetera, et cetera. And I look up and I see him and we lock eyes. You're like, man, bro, I ain't seen you in so long, but it's good to see you on this side of the, of the, of the purple, you know? And then we just embrace each other from there and, and talk stories and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, that's who I am. And that's pretty much it. Hold on. So y'all was online? When y'all saw each other? No, nah, we, 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 like, we was offline, but I had seen him in a long time. Okay. And the, the next time I saw him was when we both was bros. We was online at the same time, though, at different chapters. Oh, okay. So they so they probably bought JT down as they wreck monster. And they like, ooh, we, 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 don't, we don't play some football players. They going to come down there and they going to be out. They gave him the prep talk and everything. And then when they saw him. <laughs> and when y'all saw each other, they was like, damn, man, we thought we were going to have a story. <laughs> like, man, these niggas friends. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, man, yeah. Nah, uh, it's, it's always uh, uh, cool uh, traveling up to Ohio. Ohio State is always a location. Then we got districts. That's always a thing. So we always have at least two opportunities to go up to Ohio and uh, fellowship with the brothers. Um, you know, it's funny, you know, I come from a football tra- chapter and it is pretty rough at a football chapter. And then you go different places yeah. and then you got the intellectual bros, you know, you yep. got the hopping bros, yep. you know, got all different types of bros. And, uh, it was a cool experience. And then to see, wow, it was very nostalgic and very sincere, uh, uh, just in the sense of, wow, bro, I didn't know you was on the same journey as I was. And look at us, you know, we're here right. today. You know, and uh, oh, that's crazy. Anytime you know, because they, they consider the football bros, they consider the football bros the cat bros. Nah, no, I won't say that. <laughs> <laughs> they say, they say, they say the football hey, bros. They always, they always put the chap, nah, the uh, the frat nah, nah, football team first. About the football bros, if you grab one of them, you better know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just don't grab the football, bro. You just stay, you try to make you yeah, try to make them. Yeah, your there friends. you go. <laughs> yeah, you be like, hey, bro. I'm a bump for you. That's what I need you to step in. We're gonna be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, that's hilarious, man. <laughs> all right, it's all good, bro. Yeah. It's all. But anyway, yeah. I'll give y'all a little bit about who I am. Um, I'm I'm originally from Monroe, Louisiana. I'm a country boy. I came to Florida. Went to FAMU, studied uh, construction engineering technology, went on, worked for several different home builders, ended up getting my general contractor's license in Florida. That was my lifelong dream to be a contractor, but I did it too early. I started uh, in 2007. The market crashed. I got squeezed out. Ended up looking for a job that was recession proof. Went to the railroad, joined the manager trainee program. Uh, one of my first locations that I went to was in Toledo, Ohio. While I was in Toledo, Ohio, I was still at that age where you where you too young to hang out with the old people, but kind of too old to be hanging out with the young people. So I was at that hybrid age of 30, 31. So, so I chose to hang out with the bros. And of course, the bros were the young people. And so I went to the um, I used to hang out with the bros at the University of Toledo. And that's where I met Walt. Walt was on the football team, and Walt was from Florida. And I just took a special liking to Walt. And one of the reasons why I took a special liking to Walt is because I just 
felt Walt's energy. I liked his energy. He had a kindred spirit, and he was a cool dude. And so um, me and Walt became friends. I went on. I got married, went to Chicago. We stayed in touch, came back to Florida. Um, I have four children, two that are twins. They're 20. A born a girl. One attends the University of Florida, played football, and my daughter attends FAMU. Uh, I have a daughter that's 10 years old in Toledo, and I also have a son that's eight years old. The 20-year-old, when he was playing football and in AAU basketball, he was highly sorted out. And, and in this chapter, we're going to be talking about the conveyor belt. I kind of lived the conveyor belt vicariously through my son. Um, and then the other two guests, I know Walt and JT, obviously, <laughs> they they experienced the belt firsthand experience and firsthand knowledge. So, um, so let's kind of. I got a question. Tell me more about the kid. You know, what kind of kid are we talking about? Like, at what age did you know that you he was done getting whoopings? Like, you know, how, how big is this kid? <laughs> oh, you said what age was he done getting whoopings? Yeah, you're like, you oh know man, that's a great question. You just realized, okay, that ain't gonna hurt him. <laughs> no is, man. That, that's a great question. I'm gonna answer that question. <laughs> Nicholas was growing up so fast and he was so athletic. When I used to go and take him to play basketball, I used to beat him and I like to talk. I talk trash, so I used to talk trash to him and I used to like foul him hard. I used to try to like right. make him tough. And then one day I came home, we went to the court like we normally do talking trash like I normally do and I'm waiting for him to start crying and getting all mad. He wasn't crying, he wasn't getting mad. I started fouling him hard. Okay. He wasn't calling foul. Okay. okay. He was draining yeah, three. Growed up. And, then going right, like, and that's when you knew. Yeah. 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 That's, that's when you knew. Yeah. And, and that's that's cool. when I knew that, you know what, I'm going to try my damnness because I'm not, I'm not athletic at all. But I was beating him and so to him, yeah. I was like, yeah, nah, I got yeah, it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I know what I really am. But I had to maintain that God yeah. status in his psyche. And, you know, so so that game, I barely won. I won. And uh-huh. I, said, I said, I ain't playing him no more. And I'm going to come up. I want to leave out on top. On top, undefeated. There you go. Think, like, you know, hey, man, if I play Mr. G, Mr. G can yeah. dunk. Mr. G can do all this. He thinks that it is mine. Yeah. So, I wanted to leave on that note, but yeah, that was a good question. <laughs> All right, so let's let's shift gears, man, and talk about this chapter, the conveyor belt. The chapter is conveyor belt, and it opens up with the 1983 McDonald's All Star American Game, and it was the author's first major sports story for the New York Times. So he arrived at the game two days before, and he attended one of those practices. So since himself wasn't highly recruited. He didn't understand all the hype behind it. So while he was at the game and looking around, it became clear a top recruit could mean the difference between a winning season and a losing season and the difference in a bowl game or not. And most importantly, the prestige yep. that came associated the difference with between it. between a year in the black and a year in the red. <laughs> ah, you know, hey, what you mean by that? <laughs> you know, beer, food, you know. Yeah, all the things that come along with with um, with the game. I think that's the part that we don't see growing up. That means nothing at all to us growing up. Uh, we almost don't realize that we're on a conveyor belt. 
Yeah, like, that's true. Yeah, like and yeah, and also to piggyback on what JT was talking about, like I, I, he was saying with the with the beer, he's talking about like the con- concession sales. Like athletes don't get a part of the, of the uh, concession sales. Athletes don't get a part to a part of the jersey sales or a part of the uh, the headband sales or the sock sales or the or the uh, the commercial sales. You know, it's more so we're just more so just out on the field, uh, minding our business, being right. blinded by everything that's going on. Right, you're happy to be there. Right, right, right. right. So but, they, they sell it as you thinking you came to the promised land and that is your shot to get to where you ultimately want to go. So that was your first hurdle is to get to the college. Yeah. Correct. So that was this one kid out of Baltimore that was being heavily recruited by Georgetown's head coach, John Thompson. And his name was Reggie Williams. And all the effort paid off because in Reggie's first year, he single-handedly helped Georgetown win the 1984 national championship, which in turn ensured John Thompson steady lucrative career. And this one black teenager from the inner city of Baltimore made a multi-million dollar difference for one of the most respected universities in the nation, Georgetown. So how can an elite talent who is so far out of the peripheral of such a university who normally would be ignored be at the top of the school's priority recruitment list? And the answer is through a sophisticated recruiting apparatus that can create a drastic reversal of fortune where the poor can become rich and those with the least access to higher education receive scholarships to some of America's distinguished institutions. And this apparatus is called the conveyor belt. So the conveyor belt works like this. In various cities, you have different leagues that offer sports outlets, such as the YMCA, YWMCA, Boys Club of America, Little League Baseball, Pop Warner, City Leagues, et cetera, that provides entry-level training. And this is to provide like recreational outlets to hundreds of thousands of youth to learn physical confidence and discipline. But for the more talented players, they function as a channel for a more refined pool of talent. The conveyor belt moves through the camps and clubs and clinics, separating the resources by levels of talent and moving the more talented players to more rigorous competition and better training and coaching, and finally to college and pros. So that's kind of like how the conveyor belt moves. But I kind of want to read this uh, this excerpt from the book. It says, at its best, the contemporary conveyor belt is a streamlined mechanism for developing players and offering training and showcases where talented players can display their talents for college scouts. At its worst, the conveyor belt introduced young people to the worst ills of contemporary sports industrial complex while they are still young and impressionable. It's at the camps where many first learn about the gifted athlete limited entitlement. The better athletes learn that no wrong is too great to overlook, if not erase, that no jam is too severe to get out of. The conveyor belt process makes a future star feel that he's above the fray from an early age. Isolated on the belt, young athletes become accustomed to hearing yes all the time and having adults fawn over them and give them second and third chances because of the promise of their talents. No matter how focused or disciplined they are on the court, young athletes are not given any restraints off the court. Life on the belt also fosters dependency. Star athletes who are so inclined become accustomed to being shepherded through the system 
without ever having to look out for themselves. From simple perks mm -hmm. as not having to stand in line to more serious crutches like being guided through the school by tutors and structured study halls. On the conveyor belt, young athletes learn quickly that easy passes through the white control system is contingent upon not rocking the boat, not being a troublemaker, and making those in position of power feel comfortable with the athlete's blackness. So their goal is to get the kids out of their natural environment into a platform that benefits then when I say them, uh, the institution, the organization, I won't just say uh, white people in general, but they, they make up the majority of the higher level institutions. Although we have the power to go to black colleges, uh, they don't always have the same resources as larger, larger institutions do. Um, you can't blame any one institution or the other for that. What I can say is when I grew up, I wanted to play for Florida State. You know, right. I, I, I didn't want to go to family with them and, and ain't nothing against yeah. family with them. Yeah. I, I, like, yeah. It starts a lot earlier than when you decide to go to college. You know what I'm saying? I think a part of the system of the conveyor belt, one of the things is at one time they, they weren't letting us in these institutions. Once they start letting us in these institutions, because they have all the resources, they became the powerhouse schools. So the belt is a system. And the system has programmed the minds to say, hey, this is where the elite talent goes. So everybody who is elite goes to these elite schools, thus making the lower tier schools become actually. Isn't it funny how no one schools. has a gun to our head? Isn't no. It funny? Like how we just perceive Florida State to be better than. I, I'm saying they name too much. Let, let's say West Virginia, for example, just to drop my school in there, right? Um, we perceive a Division One university to be better than a Division Three university. Yeah, I, I think I think I think on top of that too, man. Like man, it's like it is. Yeah, I, I think I think on top of that too. Uh, well, from from my perspective, it was more so about like the advertising and also seeing these seeing these schools on television, right? And then being able to be from South Florida and then seeing these schools on television, they prime time games, you know. You want to be able to be have the most amount of exposure to be able to, to have an interview for the NFL long term, you know? I mean, and, man, and you know what? Yeah. And when you have the resources, you can make your school be become more attractive. Right. And then when you control the narrative and you control the media and you got like this big, fancy, shiny objects, then you're going to attract the elite talent. Throughout the years, Florida State, West Virginia, and all these other big schools, University of Florida, they have become a staple in our mindset that they are the elite schools. And if you are an elite talent, you want to go compete against other elite talents. That brings me back to the beginning of the chapter, right? At the beginning of the chapter on the first page, there's a quote by Carter G. Woodson from the book, Miseducation of a Negro. And he opens the chapter with this quote, and it reads, when you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. You do not have to tell them to stand here or go yonder. He will find his proper place and will stay in it. You do not need to send him to the back door. He will go without being told. In fact, if there is no back door, he will cut one out for his special benefit. His education makes it necessary. That was deep. Yeah. I'm going to tell you this. Everybody ain't going to catch that one. <laughs> Like, I haven't made it all the way through to the other side, 
you know, and actually being a pro, a professional, being in the National Football League, I feel like I almost know how that business works even better than the NCAA. The NCAA is a nonprofit. I'm still trying to figure out how. I mean, I get it. You know, I understand that the universities pay them, you know, but it's more about like um, how much we believe in the brand of Division yeah. One University. That's a good question. Like, you know what I mean? And, and also yeah. on top of that, like, how much do we believe in the brands? But on top of that, like, when, we, when we've when we had, like, several, several examples of uh, the NCAA, you know, um, picking and choosing the top-tier athletes, and then when they're done with the athletes, you know, the athletes, some some of them can't even come back and get resources from, the, from those universities that they've made so many millions of dollars from, you know? So it's like, why should we still believe in the universities at this point in time in, in life, you know? Man, you know, and, and I feel like we're kind of reverse engineering this thing, right? And I mentioned the pros. We're talking about the NCAA and our college experiences, but the conveyor belt starts at like eight, right? <laughs> we're jockeying in it at, at about eight, where they separate you by, like they say in the book, they separate you by age first, and then they kind of separate you by talent level. Yep, and you continue to do things that make you not like the other kid. Right, hey, dive right. more to it into that gen JT. Like as far as uh Oh man, right? And, and and then you start getting more yeses, right? You start getting uh gifts from your uncles, new shoes because you're good at football. You start getting grades, you know, grades that you know, don't get me wrong, you know, I think you have the ability to be a smart kid, but you kind of know you ain't necessarily earn them, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh pushing our guys through uh knowing that, you know, hey, I want to get this kid who's very talented to another level. So that Oklahoma can profit off of his jersey sales. Yeah. Like, they kind of know that at like Hey, eight. but look, th think about this on another aspect, right? So you got this eight, nine-year-old child, and then you got the adults that are really not on the conveyor belt, but they're part of the actual system as far as aiding this kid to be on the conveyor belt, you know? Like, for example... That's a part of it. Right, right, right. But I'm, I'm saying like prime example right now, right? Uh, JT coaches uh, part one of football for a uh, youth organization. Western Tigers, 14U. Western Tigers, Southern Park, 14U. Right, you, you know, you know it's, it's bringing it back. Too. Bringing it back. Yeah. Bringing our championship swagger back. Well, look, so look. I can only speak about my experience when I played for the Pompano Beast Cowboys, one of the most prestigious organizations down here in South Florida. You know, we got a great alumni, i.e. My, my boy Lamar Jackson, who's tearing up the NFL right now at this moment. But listen, so when I played like Pop Warner football, right, you had those players that was like, that was so good that neighborhood drug dealers and then neighborhood hustlers, you know, they would pay for these players to play. They would go to their parents, give them money, and say, you know what, listen, I know your son need cliques, I know your son need uh, jersey, mm -hmm. uniform, et cetera, et cetera, but I'm going to pay for him to play. Even though he's not doing well in school, he's talking back to you. He's not the model ideal citizen of a nine or 10 year old student. Right. And the reason that those adults pay for these players to play at an early age because of outside influences and because they have their own personal agenda at that particular age, their own personal agenda is they want to gamble on sports, you know. So you may have a young kid that's real fast or real tall that can catch touchdowns and he's playing for the let's say the the nine you or the 10 you and he scores four or five touchdowns every game right you want to make sure that 
he's playing. No, you don't care about his outside circumstances. You don't care about uh, if he's a good student at all. You want to make sure he's playing so you can win your money. And I think uh, so many times that we forget about those adults as these kids are 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 years old. Uh, that's a part of the conveyor belt as well, too, that we they get left out of the whole equation, you know? Because it's, a, it's a, Yeah, they, feed, right, the they feed the belt. And you know what? Another thing that happens on the belt, once you become identified as a special talent, you're plucked out your situation. Whether you're, whether you're in a dire situation, don't worry about that. You're going to get special training. You're going to get the special kind of one-on-one with the coaches. Or they're going to send you to somebody that can give you that special route running or that special that special training to, to pitch a baseball or shoot a jumper. This at 10-11. Another thing that happens is, let's say with an AAU basketball team, when they're traveling, everybody else on the team has to pay their AAU fees to be on the sure. team. You ain't got to pay. Everybody else got to pay for their shoes and their bags. You ain't got to pay. The only thing you got to be responsible for is working on your craft and getting better. So at 10, 11, in your mind, all you got on you thinking about is, listen, homework is second. I need to make sure I got this jump shot. Or homework is second. I need to make sure that I got this route running. Everything else is going to be taken care of because like you mentioned in a, another podcast before, while you say some people look at this like home run, I need to hit this home run and get my family out of the projects, right? right? So you're on a conveyor belt. So now you're isolated. You're away from the group. You're getting special treatment. And, and sometimes the treatment, not just in the classroom because they want to keep you eligible, but you're getting special treatment with the special one-on-ones with the coaches. I mean, imagine feeling like – You'll eat better if you stay the night at Coach House rather than staying home. Thank you. Like, you know, imagine not having a father figure in the household at all, and Coach kind of just represent the strongest figure you have in your life. You know what I mean? Like, it, it becomes bigger than what, what they can buy the kids a lot of times. Right. Those relationships are even deeper than that. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think we kind of, you know, Yo, now we're talking about youth football, youth development, right? And they're jockeying up for positions for what the next level is right. in high school, right? Right. Man, it's funny. I've been able to engage with a few youth athletes through my mentorship program and my nonprofit foundation. That's been going ever since my first year in the league. Man, I get a, I get a really good, like, I, re- I get great insight into what's going on in the current young black, uh, you know, teenagers mindset you know their resources uh what they have what they don't have what they're going through you know i got some kids man who are in foster care you know i got some kids who mom don't speak english and don't care whether they go to practice or not you know you know know, 80 percent of my kids don't have fathers. i also i volunteered this current year a jtf foundation at the um the youth program that he put on for the youth this year man it was a great turnout on my first year volunteering, but you do realize um, having conversation with some of these kids, some of these kids are they, their own male father figure. And then also on top of that, YouTube, Instagram are raising these kids. So when they do have a chance to get an outlet to be a part of, you know, some ex NFL player or current NFL come, player comes back and, you know, gives them a two hours or three hours at a time or whatnot, they hold on tight to it, you know? That could be a life-changing situation that could prevent them from doing whatever it may be. And then it also could 
could expose them to players that may be on the conveyor belt that they're not aware of in their old communities. I take what I'm reading now in a different perspective than I did. Maybe my first three, four, five years in the league before I kind of woke up. You know, after my major injury to my ACL, uh, that's my that was my first time reading Forty Million Dollar Slaves. The one time when I had a chance to sit down and think about what's actually going on, because up until that point, you're so focused on eating, you're so focused on getting better, you're so focused on, you know, playing, shining, and all the things that come along with the game that you kind of get lost, right? When I was talking about levels tour, I can tell you some other people who are up there. Patrick Peterson's belt was a little different than mine. I'm going to tell you that right now. Uh, a South Florida guy, like you just mentioned, Lamar Jackson, I'm going to tell you this. His his conveyor belt was probably a little different than mine. You know, the common athlete down here in South Florida, we all ballers down here. Ain't, ain't no mistaking about that. Brown kind of number one first round draft picks this year. Right? You know, but then you have those once in a generational talents, like, like LeBron, who they spoke about in the chat. Like Chris Weber, who they talk about in the chat, guys who come and shift the paradigm in the universities and the high schools and the parks or whatever organization they play for. No, hey, when we get this kid, we're all of a sudden the best team. Hand, hands down. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like yeah, one player can can, no. can change the whole trajectory. Yeah. Of your so in the book, right when they was talking about the player, when the author was at the Madonna's All American Game talking about the player that John Thompson got that changed the whole trajectory of John Thompson's career. Really, if you think about it, that one player alone changed the history of John Thompson, Thompson's career and also his family as well, too. He was able to eat off that one player being a success in his program for 30-something years, even to the fact that his son was able to benefit from the residuals of that player going to Georgetown because his son became head coach of Georgetown later on down the line in the early 2000s. But if John Thompson was not able to get that particular player, who knows what would have happened to his family's trajectory, you know? That's why great players and great athletes are looked at so differently as opposed to just regular everyday athletes because they can change the, the mindset and the life of a coach's entire family. And this is the thing, right? We're not just talking about these athletes and their impact on the game, right? What this chapter is talking about is the mentality of the athlete. So, so it's more about, hey, hey, obviously, uh, you know, I'm one of the most talented players, you know, to ever come through this thing. But I still feel like the university is giving me a scholarship rather than me earning. You're not just giving me something. I'm bringing the chances of your school winning up, which is going to bring more dollars into this university, whether we win or lose. Like, which is going to help us go to bowl games, which is going to make the whole the whole athletic department money. You know, you know, so it's just like knowing that you know my talent level has a tremendous impact on on, on the institution that I'm going to. Yeah, you guys are giving me an education. And so, you know, and it's still debatable <laughs> about how applicable, you know, high level learning is, you, you know what I mean? You know, but, but it's more about like, hey, give me something tangible that, you know, my mom can be able to feel without me going to jail. Like, you know, my likeness, my brand, my image, what people think about me. If you sell a number one jersey and you know it's me, I would hope that my mom could be able to feel that. Right. You know what I mean? I think that we're trending in the right direction when it when it comes to the NCAA. You know, we're going to be hating on the kids by the time, you know, 2025 
fit here because they're gonna be getting what they deserve, at least closer yeah. to what and, they and deserve. that's a good thing. If, you know I mean? if if they're in a position for you to hate on them, right? That means that we made some gains. Like you got to think, right? We're talking about you know sports, business, economics. You got to think the average white family is is worth about a million dollars, and the average black family is worth a little less than than a hundred thousand dollars. All put together, the family. There's a real wealth inequality going on out here. Right. So these opportunities for these kids are much right. deeper than it would be for Timmy out in Western. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, hey, you know, you can come into something that can right. really, really change the whole dynamics of generations of your right. family. Like, hey, JT. Yeah. So when you made a great point when you said that this chapter in this book is kind of talking about not what actually happens but it's the mindset of people, right? And that kind of goes into the story that the, authors, uh, the author talks about when he talks about the Kellen, the Kellen Winslow Jr. and the Kellen Winslow Sr. story. And that story, Kellen Winslow was like one of the number one recruits coming out of high school. And he was being sought after about all the top colleges. And his dad, because of his dad experience, his dad wasn't on the conveyor belt because he started playing high school football his senior year, and he ended up earning a scholarship to play at the University of Missouri. So his dad went on to play in the NFL from 1979 through 1987, and he ended up getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. So his dad kind of understood from his personal experience and being in college and then going to the NFL, his worth, and he kind of had a jump on it. And we were talking about earlier about a lot of times people that be on this conveyor belt, they don't have mm-hmm. any real mentors. We talk about they don't have any dads and things mm-hmm. of that nature. So mm-hmm. Kellen Jr. was fortunate enough to have a daddy who kind of gone through the process. So since his son was on the on the belt, he knew that there was a system and he was able to recognize, hey, that there's a belt and both people benefit. You benefit from having my son on your team? And my son benefits from being on your team. And with that attitude, he kind of got in front of it. And one of the coaches that was recruiting his son was the University of Washington. And his head coach was uh, Winslow Sr.'s teammate for the San Diego Chargers. He kind of rubbed him wrong because they was recruiting his son, but the coach knew him and he didn't reach out and call him. So it was one time when the coach had scheduled a meeting to come to visit a visit and Kellen senior found out by his son that day. And he was like, hi, he's scheduling a visit at my house. And he didn't call me. One of the things that the author spells out is in order for the belt to work, you want to separate the resource, which is the child, the athlete from the, the parent. And once you separate the child, then you can kind of, control their mind and shape their way of thinking into the way you want it to, to think. But if they have an involved parent, then it kind of makes things a little difficult. So Kellen Sr. was that involved parent. And he told him, since that coach didn't uh, didn't respect me and he didn't call me, and he went around me through other coaches at the school, the swim coach and the baseball coach, and he knows me personally, no, you're not going to the University of Washington. And then Kellen Winslow ended up going to the University of Miami. And then we know the rest is history with Kellen Winslow, his career. But 
with that story, I have one question, JT and Walt. What do you guys think about his dad's involvement in his decision-making for his college? Do you think that it was overbearing, or do you think that's what he should have done? Well, you know, I had a dad who had a chance to play some college football, you know, and to help me navigate through those times and in my life. Now, he wasn't with my mom. I didn't spend a whole lot of time with him, but he had insight. He had been there, and I kind of knew what to look for. I got it. I understood. He was the first one to help me to certain things. Like, I never forget the one of the first things my dad ever said to me. He was like, you got to know how to play the game. And I knew he wasn't talking about football. <laughs> like, and he was the first one to, 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 to right, help me right, understand right. that, okay, it's another game being played here, and you got to know. It's a game within a game. Yeah, like, you know, it's almost like uh, it's funny. I, I heard them mention uh, no-nothingness kind of when it comes to what they want in the conveyor belt. You know, a lot of times they really want you to act like you don't know nothing at least, like to not say anything, even if you know something to say. Like, so it's like. You know, you kind of have to understand that you're on the conveyor belt. You know, around that high school time, it got to start clicking for you. I mean, that's when my dad started having those conversations with with me. I was blessed in that sense. Like, in a sense of, hey, everything I do now impacts how my future progresses here. Like, you you know what I mean? Um, uh, Being on that belt then didn't feel like it at all. You know, while you yeah yeah, I definitely well. was on it yeah. But okay, so um, to answer your question, Lenny, as far as do I feel that Keller Winslow's dad was 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 too involved? I think well, I don't have any kids right now, right? But as a father, and I have a father, and he's heavily involved in my life as well too. And then my mother, she's heavily involved in my life, and she was a part of my recruiting process too, right? Uh. Killer Winslow Sr., he was only doing what a father should do that had experience in the footsteps in which his son was about to take, right? And what I mean by that, because of the fact he was privy to having mentors when he was in college, of having mentors when he was in the NFL, and then knowing how the overall system worked, he was like, you know what, I'm not going to let this system bite my son up and chew him and spit him out. I'm going to have some kind of say-so in the overall narration of my son's life. So granted, he has to be on the belt. There's no way around it. But he's not going to have those blinders that those thoroughbred have on when he's on the conveyor belt. He's going to be, his eyes are going to be open, third eye, second eye, whatever eye you want want to say is open. It's going to be open to the fact that he's going to know what's going on with his surroundings. Also, every decision he's going to make is going to be calculated. He has to make calculated decisions that's going to benefit him because these schools have something uh, that they want from my son, which is his athletic talent, his athletic prowess. And these schools are going to make X amount of dollars per year off my son. So why not let my son benefit off these schools as well, too? That's right, man. Like, we don't know how things are going to work out, right? Like, Okay, yeah, Kellen was no doesn't go to Washington. He goes to Miami. Listen to his dad. You know, you know, the guidance can only help you so far. It's almost like the things that were instilled in you in those formative ages start to show 
regardless of what mom or dad can or can't do for you at the college level, right? I say that to say, uh, Lenny, do you know yeah. Kellen Winslow's current situation? Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. I, I won't speak too much about that. You know, I'm just saying that to say that, man, this conveyor belt, it's a wild ride now. And can't nobody save you. Like, once you make your mind up, ride. once you decide. The moment you decide. Like, I'm going to tell you this. That coach that walked into your living room ain't the same coach when you show up on campus now. I mean, I, I mean, you'll go from a coach smiling and talking to your mom to you having to wonder if the coach knows who yeah, you that, are that's, now. That's, that's a real legitimate uh, psychological dynamic of, of being a college football player, right? What I want, like, high school athletes to understand from this particular episode of the podcast is that what JT is saying is true. When you do arrive, that same guy that recruits you in, in high school that comes into your, your living room, he's not going to be the same exact friendly, buddy-buddy person when you arrive on that college campus because of the fact now that you are on campus and that you are signed up for the athletic scholarship, when you arrive on campus, you're going to have – I played DB, for example. When I arrived on campus, I had four other guys that played DB, which is cornerback in my same position. Granted, you got to fight for a spot. I had the red shirt, but in that red shirt year, it builds so much of character in you as a person. You got to learn how to, you know, pick up the bags after the, the special teams players are, are done playing. You got to be the last one to leave out of the locker room and, and clean up, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many small duties that you go from as a senior in high school. Now you're back on the, the lowest man on the totem pole at that university, unless you are a top tier athlete. You, unless you are a plug-and-play type athlete, you know, that blue-chip type athlete that comes into a university and is a, a, a life-changing uh, prospect for that particular school. Yeah. Hey, Walt, real quick. when I know you was talking about, like, when that coach comes sits on your mm -hmm. couch, he's not the same coach as he is when you get to school, right? Speak a little bit up on how coaches view you know, I know when they're on the couch and your parents ask all those right questions like, okay, what about life after football and would my son be able to get an education, blah, blah, blah. And I know they're going to say everything that your parents want to hear. Tell me about how it is once you get on campus and how the sports you're playing that got you the scholarship, how your coach view that versus your academic. All right. So that's a great question. So my second day on the campus at the university that I that I went to, I had a coach. Um, his name won't be disclosed, but he said, Walter Atkins, you're here for two reasons, right? The first reason that you're here is to get an education. And he held up a number two, <laughs> right? The second reason that you're here is to play football. And he held up a number one, right? So that particular conversation set the actual tone for the rest of my college <laughs> the rest of my college you career you made, made it real clear yeah why you there you 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 didn't come here because you scored a high score on your That's act no nah. you was his math genius you came because you know how to chase down receivers and bat down balls and occasionally catch one right simple as that <laughs> <laughs> yeah simple as that man jt, JT. when, when uh, same question for you when, when that guy came down and, and he was recruiting you to play for the University of West Virginia and he sat down on your couch and I know your mama had a bevy of questions for him and I know one of the questions she probably asked him to say, okay, so my son's going to be going to this school. What about life after football? What about his education? 
And I know your the coach gave your mom the, the script that we take education very serious here, blah, blah, blah. Tell me the difference from that conversation that he had sitting on your couch versus when you really got there. Yeah, it definitely wasn't that conversation. Like, I already knew what time it was, Lenny. Like, you know, my dad went to West Virginia. I came up there when I was in the eighth grade. I showed out at the camp. Like, I was playing with the high school boy. They knew that, okay, we could get this kid from Florida whose dad went. Like, I wanted to go there. They knew I wanted to go there. You know, my mom may have a whole lot to say, you know, about it. They came over, but they was more impressed by my mom's cooking than them impressing my, my, my mom. You know what I mean? It was, uh, and I'm a different kind of kid in the sense of, you know, I'm a true enthusiast. I love the game. I like the tradition of it. That's why I went to where my dad went. West Virginia had to work that hard to get me. You know what I mean? Um, uh, for, for other kids, it's a little bit a little different. different. Yeah, it's a little bit different because yeah. other kids are first generation college uh, football players or college basketball players or tennis players. Like my situation was a little bit different as well, too. Like My mom played college, college basketball. She also had uh, over 50 high school offers coming out of high school as well, too. My mom was cream of a crop down here in South Florida. But when she came out of high school, it was during that time period, Lenny, that we talked about when HBCUs got the cream of the crop of college athletes that came out of the state of Florida, you know. So she didn't want to go to the University of Miami in the early 1970s. They was trash in basketball. She didn't want to go to FIU or FAU. They was trash at that particular time, you know. So she decided to go to an HBCU where they had a winter tradition and then they actually, you know, did great when she was there. But uh, to, furthermore, like my mother, she understood the process because she was on the conveyor belt for her so sometime as well, too, for college basketball players, female at that particular time in her day. There wasn't no WNBA. So she had to get off the conveyor belt at an early exit, fresh out of college, you know. And then later she had me, which was the greatest thing she ever done in her life. But that's another story. <laughs> I'm not your brother, just you. <laughs> JT, this question is for you. Life after sports. As a child, you're the man in football. You're the man in part one. You already know where you're going. You, like you said, you went to the camps. You showed out. You went. You um. You you made three time three years in a row. All Big East linebacker. You, so you already know, you you already kind of know your destination. Once you made it to your destination and you got to the pros, tell me how that was. Were you prepared mentally after practice and after the game for life off the field? But tell me, tell me that experience on life off the field, not life on the field. You know, it, it's a process. Uh, I can appreciate being a veteran now in the NFL, having seen like both ends of the spectrum and truly being able to appreciate every part of my process and journey. Um, then then uh, the JT uh, rookie year, sophomore season kind of thing, and uh, the things that were on my mind then. Then it wasn't enough time in the day. Now it's more of a... Uh, Hey, Jay, well, Jay, can you speak on the fact as far as like maybe like the your rookie year as far as like the time schedule? Because you, you mentioned you said you didn't have too much time to think about a lot of things off the field. Right. And I I, I believe that's legit. Speak about like your, your, your time schedule. Get up in the morning time. What was like an average day your rookie year, you would say? Like an average day, like 630, 630. 
12 hour days. <laughs> you know, you wake up early, being there on time for treatment. You yeah. can't miss, miss anything yeah, as a, as a rhythm. Club, it's like, and if you're late, like you're going to get fined. 10 grand, you know, <laughs> like for everything yeah. you miss. So, yeah. like, it's about maybe eight meetings a day. If you miss all eight of them, that's 10 grand a meeting. $80,000. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like when it's about money, it's funny how that mind works, like, when it's about money. The same way our fraternity works and helps you control your mind, like, and do things that you thought you couldn't do. When that money on the line, you find a way to practice. Right. Like, find a way to make it through the game. That's an incentive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it becomes more about eating than anything. As in, for a time there, football was first in my life, and that's not good. That's not a good place to be in. Mm-hmm. That's not good for any any functioning person to be in a situation where football comes before God. When you know football better mm-hmm. than God, you're in a bad place. Mm-hmm. That's, that's deep. Yeah. That's really deep. Really it's a very really vulnerable deep. place. Yeah. As in, what happens if someone takes it from you? You crash. You crash out. You hit rock bottom. You do some things that weren't of you because you're in a very, very wild place. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's deep you said that, man. I- so that's huge what you said, JT. But on the flip side of that coin, do you really think that you can make it to that next level if you don't put football first? If football don't become your life? I, I think you can. I-, I-, I think you can. I think that some of my homies growing up, like, you know, their identity was in football. When they got taken away, they stopped going to school. Right. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, I think it definitely, you know, you definitely have to make sure that kids are diversified and that they don't, that they're educated on understanding what the odds of them no, actually no, no, making no. it to no, the, the next No, the question level. was, the question was, do you really think you can make it to the next level if it's yeah. not till first part? You got some people That's who don't play to their 12th so, graders in high school. Okay. Wasn't thinking about football. Okay. But so tolerant that it made sense for them. Like, okay. football don't be a lot of people's first option. You got some guys who be hardcore baseball players and just end up doing football because, you know, they like the sport. Yeah, and they, it just made sense. You know, I think you can now. I will say that that wasn't my mindset. I was all football. And I and I made my, my mind up for sure, like, around 11th grade. 10th, 11th grade. Like, I used to play a little basketball, but I felt like, you know, yeah. the average point guard was 6'4". And I was just like, you know what? I feel like I'm more of a football player. Hey, you know what? Let's let's, let's talk about that point, too, as well, man. Because we uh, anybody that ever played college football or basketball, we all come to a point, right? Well, when you're playing, like, uh, middle school or you in, like, high school and you're playing, like, two or three sports, right? You get to that, you get to that point. You're like, you know what? I got to choose one of these sports. Unless you're like a top tier athlete, you got to actually choose one of those sports. Your mom can't make that decision for you and your dad can't as well, too. It got to be like a more so a self man to man epiphany that you got to have and you got to go through your actual self. I went through the same exact thing when I was in like I played basketball all through high school, but I soon realized that I was going to be a better athlete in football to get to college. You know, my, my eyes just was better coming out of South Florida. It's a numbers game, you know? It's a numbers game. Yeah, the basketball team. Right. There's right. more players it's, on the football team math. than the basketball team. Right. And you know what? That that rolls back into my question about Kellen Winslow Sr. You know, and like what you said, JT, to piggyback on what you said, Kellen Winslow Sr. didn't start playing until his senior year in high school. So you're absolutely right about that. But get back to my a question that I asked y'all about how his dad's involvement was with his son choosing his college. 
um, you know, as a parent, you you got to understand that when your child uh, turns 18, in most places, like they're considered adults and you have to give them everything that they need up front to make a great informed decision. You never want to like to me personally, I never want to step in and make a decision for you. Right. And, and say, no, I know you want to go here, but you're going to go there. Because at the end of the day, I'm not going to be the one that's going there. I'm not going to be the one that has to wake up at five in the morning to be at five forty five practices and do that. So it's kind of like uh, or, or like the frat, you know, <laughs> you're not going to finish the process if that's not your choice. If you're not doing it for if you're doing it for anything other than yourself, we'll do what are your thoughts on that, uh, Walt and JT. JT, you can go first. At some at some point, the power of like choice comes in. The way you can't do it for them, kind of thing, and and I don't think there's a right way to parent or to help kids decide. At times, you know, you, so, some people like to give the full liberty to the kids and have, like them to be, you know, sure about their decision, and not to have any regrets, kind of thing. Some some parents are a little more hands on. Yeah, hey, I don't took care of you your whole life. You couldn't make the decision by wow. yourself, like. And uh, hey, I, I'm gonna decide where you end up going. Some some parents meet somewhere in between, you know. I don't think there is a right way. I think that's where kind of fate, you know, uh, fate kicks in. Cause look, Chris Webb and them, you know, say, hey, let's all go to Michigan. They went to the championship back to back, lost two times in a row. You know, sometimes you can have the cards and fate don't just roll your way. You, you know what I mean? So it's one of those things where I think sometimes you just gotta trust, you know, the football guys when they. When it comes to your journey and path to, you know, getting to the next level, and at the end of the day, you know, you're gonna pay your price no matter where you go. You're gonna have to put in the work that it takes in order to be a top tier athlete to make it to the next level. You know, someone's you know at Buffalo University waiting for you to think that you can take that take their job. Like you know, what I mean, don't think nowhere that you go is gonna be sweet. You know, you're gonna run into another Wall Atkins. You're gonna run into another JT Thomas. Who, who mama hungry too. Yeah. You know, the, the competition goes up too with the resources and all that other stuff, you know, and, and, and then you have a situation where, okay, a kid does face adversity. Hey, I do realize I, I was great in my hometown, but I ain't as great, you know, and that's where I think the divide ends up, you know, happening. It, you know, it don't mean that one kid better than the other, you know, the other kid just was able to deal with and develop at a faster yeah. rate than, than the other kid had an opportunity to. You, you know what I mean? You know, right. you, you just would, would hope that you're in a situation where your kid isn't doing everything he should be doing and making all the plays he should be and still being like blackballed for some odd reason. Yeah. You want to make sure it's not no fishy business, like no super political stuff going on. But a lot of yeah, times, that, it's just a lot of talent. You know, that's what level. I want you to speak up on. Right. I want the listeners who are not athletes just going to school academically, I want you to walk our listeners through the process of being recruited, going going to college away from home. Talk a little bit about the schedule. Talk about what happens if you're recruited by a coach and then that coach leaves the university. The new coach come in, they bring in their recruits. Talk about that. Talk about at what happens and at what point do you say, hey, I might not make it to the next level or if I'm going to make it to the next level, there's some adjustments I have to make. All right. Walk us so through the, the psychological, the psychological mindset. mindset of a college athlete 
once you once you arrived on campus and you, you have your coach, um, that's your guy, right? That's your guy that recruited you. That's your guy that's going to fight for you. That's your guy that's going to speak up for your talent, right? So you're balling. You may be starting. You may be second string. And when you, when you get the opportunity to be able to, to get on the field, um, you producing, you know. But when that coach leaves, every player needs, if he's not like a top-tier player, every player that's like a, a, a decent player or or a second-tier player needs somebody that's going to bat for them, you know. Because one thing about football or sports in general, you're going to make mistakes. And when you make mistakes, you don't want to be looking over your right shoulder or left shoulder thinking someone's behind you is going to get in the game the next play, you know. So when that coach, when that coach leaves um, the university, you're put in a position where now you got to put your faith in new coaches, a new agenda, a new system, right? And that new system may not favor your skill set, right? It's more so skill set that gets players to the NFL or the NBA and systems than the actual uh, player all the time, right? The player can have – you can have the, some of the players that have the, the best abilities ever, but if they're not in the right system, they're not going to flourish, i.e., prime example right now, uh, Lamar Jackson. If Lamar Jackson was in a, a system like a Tom Brady system, he to drop back and pass in the ball all the time, he wouldn't have the opportunity to display his actual skill set. And therefore, he wouldn't be looked at as one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL right now to this day. But back to my story, right? And back to a, a, the mindset of a, a person in my situation. So my situation was more so like we had three coaches in four different years when I was at the University of Toledo, right? Crazy situation. We got three different defenses. We got, I got three different uh, D coordinators. I got three different position coaches. It's almost impossible for an NFL team to come in and give, have even a good look at the talent that we had at the university because of the fact every freaking year we got a new system being installed, right? (laughs) All right, all right. So even when I came out, it was the NFL lockout season, whatever, whatever. But it came my time to get off the conveyor belt, right? So I was, it was my senior season. I redshirted my senior season. And then I was in grad school. Uh, the university to pay for my grad school. So I have no regrets about being there at all, you know. But I was playing like arena ball for a while. And I realized, you know what? Man, this arena ball thing is cool. But at the same time, I got other who was walled outside of football? You know, what am I going to do outside to, to to reinvent myself to become an actual a model citizen? And then I had to use some of the tools and resources that I learned from being on the conveyor belt as far as the discipline, getting up early in the morning, showing up 15 minutes early to job interviews, uh, being on time, being punctual, speaking well, uh, just having like an overall motivation and, and drive and will to complete every task that's put in front of me from my employer at the particular time, right? And I excelled, you know, in corporate America because we all got a we all got a time in which football is a is a, is a girlfriend, right? And, and and sports is a girlfriend. We all got a data. We all got a data, okay. right? She treats some of us great, and we all we we are married to her for 10, 15, 20 years, and then for some. You may be married to her for four years, only in high school, right? But there comes a time when you got to stop dating her and you got to move on with your life. And the same thing with the conveyor belt. <laughs> you know, that love be deep now. That moment of having to get off. Yeah. It's funny, right? In the part in, that said that the black 
man is treated worse than the black athlete. Like, that's effed up. You treat the black athlete better than you treat the black man. Well, yeah. That ain't yeah, I, I think I think what the author was saying when he says that because of the economic aspect of that black athlete and what he can bring to a, a, a white person or what he can bring to, to anybody, you know, the economical aspect that they can they benefit from that individual person while he's still playing sports is uh, is second to none in comparison to the regular everyday black male who if you don't know that person, if you don't know that person's. uh uh, I say like educational background or what he does for a living, just seeing him in plain sight clothing, you don't know what kind of economical asset that he can be for your particular life. Right. So basically what they saying is sum it all up is the black athlete, you can see how he could benefit you. Yeah. That's what it is. You know, but, but you know what though? They talk about this in the sense of like, you know, the, the moment we were free, we became liabilities. Like, as long as you're an athlete, you're an athlete. When you become a competitor, just, you know, an employer, a a worker, or whatever you end up becoming, like, you know, they don't look at you as an asset. You're a liability. Because you're a liability. Because one thing about, like, white America as a whole, they don't necessarily like competition. Right. Um, We look at, we embrace competition. We look at competition as either we need to get better or we need to get out of this game and go play something that we're more competitive in. They look at competition as, oh, you're better than me? How about I just annihilate you and, and, so, and get you out of so the game? So even more than, than, than the game, right, the conveyor belt been done took you so far away where you're from, you find a hard time getting back sometimes. Like, here we go. I want to read that part that I was telling y'all about earlier, right? Uh, it goes on the quote. It says, they grow up and then one day they're 15, 18, they're 21. They realize they're black. They wake up and realize that they're black men in America. And then they begin to understand what that means because they're no, they're no longer an athlete. I'll be the first to tell you that people treat African-American athletes differently than they treat African-American men. Not necessarily treated better than but differently, they do treat African American athletes different different than African American yeah. men. I, totally so I, I think this right. I think um, I think talent is a very interesting thing. Like harnessed, it has this powers that money can't buy. Yeah, yeah, M- yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right about that. M- money can't buy talent, right? And then also with your talent, the access that you're privy to. Almost money can't buy it as well, it's too. It's like R. You can't buy MJ's walk. Nah. <laughs> like, yeah, am I right? Yeah. You can't. You can't buy the attitude. You can't buy the swagger. You can't buy the. You can't buy the bravado. You can't buy the boldness. You can't buy none of that. It's not for sale. Yeah, you can put a price on it. I won't say necessarily not for sale. It is for sale. It's more, you can't recreate it. You know, you couldn't do it without. Without us, it's only an original, yeah. You know, so yeah. I think that that's what makes you know being an athlete and talent in general. You know, that's why it's, it's exploited, right? Okay, of course, it's one thing for the institutions that support development in football to want to profit off of the athlete. You got to think there's intermediaries who want to sink their teeth in athletes too, managers, the mentors, uncles, mm-hmm. whoever the close dude who 
have some influence in decision making and kind of want a little kickback too. Yeah. You yeah, know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Right. So like it's all kind of hurdles, man, that I'm gonna tell you this, like, you know, my mom was a single mother, but I was an only child. Like I had a little more resources than most. Right. Like it's already kind of built to support the mothers. And then it's like it at least it wasn't eight of me. Right. Compared to some of your contemporaries who was five Man, to seven. Co- and- compared to some of my family members. Everybody You gonna put it on that? Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, yeah, the the the, the PL word, I can't. PC word. <laughs> yeah, but look, think about this too, Lenny. Man, look, when uh that person right who's eighteen, nineteen, well, who's twenty years old, right? When he goes to the to the NFL, he's a blue chip All American, right? He gets to the he, he gets to the NBA, and he has a guaranteed contract. Let's say he has a guaranteed contract of twenty million dollars, right? He goes from living in his dorm room of necessarily having let's say five hundred bucks a month budgeting. 500 bucks a month um, to now he has, I say, access to almost $20 million, you know, that's the mindset of a person that's 20 years old with $20 million. And you can pretty much, no one can tell you almost no, you know, it, it enlightens and heightens up a different level of the conveyor belt that the author didn't even touch on, you know? Financial literacy is one of them. Yeah. I was going to tell you to speak on that, JT. When you first got your NFL check and you looked at it, right? And, and how old were you? How old were you when you got it? You talking to me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How old? I'm like 22, 23. That's still pretty young. And, and like, I ain't coming to that bad bag. I'm going to tell you this. If you don't go first, second round, it ain't like that now. Yeah. <laughs> like, the margin's about the same now. Look, I'm going to tell you this now. The life of that guy who ain't quite that guy. <laughs> 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 Like, I I wish I would have had a camera around then. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Hey, so basically, JT, JT, basically, while the wide receivers and the quarterbacks and all the big name people, they uh, they playing Madden for like Madden games for like 5Gs, going out to eat and shit. If you try to hang out with yeah, them, and then, then you numbers, won't be broke. Man, like I, said, I saw some information today. Uh, you know, Bloomberg was talking about you know why basketball athletes make more than you know us, right? It's fifteen basketball players, right? They ain't got no helmets on. Like it ain't a lot. You know, you get to focus more attention on fewer players whose faces you can actually see, right? You got football players who don't know it, but they're trying hard to be seen behind the mask. They already don't get a lot of TV time. But the budget just not set up like that. Your impulse takes over. Like you start to do what you're naturally programmed to do. Like so, it, it's like it's a process that goes on there. And and that belt, man, it has different lanes. It's levels to it, and it's fast. It travels in light. Oh, oh yeah! Before you know it, it's, it's hitting you right in your face. You off it. <laughs> hey, let me ask you this. JT, first of all, how how do you get paid? How often do you get paid? They get paid every time you watch them. Think about it like that. So week to week, you got sixteen seasons, sixteen games in the season. Okay, so every game, even that, I'm, that's a curveball already. You got guys who just coming in the money, and then you got to learn how to make money like at light speed, and then the water get cut off for six months, like. 
No, that's what I was. That's what I was about, that's that's what I was about to get. At. So, years, so, 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 hit, so, give me out. All right. So, let's say you got eighteen games. So, let's say you, you you get paid like once a week. So, you you play on Sunday. Let's say you get paid like every Tuesday, right? So, every Tuesday you get your check. You get that check for 16, 16 18 weeks. You hopefully you make the playoffs because then you can extend your check all the way up into. Let's say the Super Bowl. If you win the Super Bowl, you get that check plus a bonus check. Then after Super Super Bowl is over in February, let's say you made it to the Super Bowl. So you have from February until you start back playing again in the end of August. So from February to August, if you're not making millions of dollars, but you're making, let's say, let's say you're on the low end, hypothetically, after they take out all the taxes and everything else that you got to pay for, let's say every week. You bring it home. So, so it ain't no military secret in the sense of for a rookie contract, maybe about half a million dollars. You tax that in half. That's about two fifty for the year. Right. For a rookie, right? right. See a guy who went on IR like me right. and only got half of that. Like one twenty five for the year. That's a regular salary for like that's actually a regular salary for a regular Oh, one twenty five. Okay. Then, so you got it's those hidden costs of, of of living and needing clothes. Every you know for different a lot of different occasions in different places, like you know in a timely manner, like it's like almost like impact fees, <laughs> like cost of doing business, yeah, 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 like yeah, yeah, yeah. being in the NFL, playing in the like you're prompted to do more things and to live faster. It's, it it comes along person. with the with the lifestyle, yeah, like right. you know what I mean. Right. And uh, that's when that very belt started to hit jet speed, <laughs> and, and, and and you got to have. Like no, I'm saying you, you got to run into an angel. You got to run into somebody like me. I ain't all mean that no kind of way. Right. But somebody who don't mind giving a young guy a game. Right. That's like right. you know what I'm saying. Because if not, everybody'll sit back and watch. And you know what? You also got to worry about the people back home that's been watching you since little league in high school, and now you made it. You're that you're that guy. They know you. They got your phone number, or they got pictures with you, and you in the league. They seen you on TV getting in the game a couple, two, three times, and they think you got it. But I'll tell you quick, hey, I ain't got it. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, yeah. you, you got to be able to do that. Yeah. Like, because if you don't, man, like, you'll find yourself. You'll find yourself broke quick. I mean, I, I mean, I think this, right? I know guys who go harder than me, like, at the end of the day. I don't think I'm the best money manager in the world, but I know guys who go so much harder to to prove so much more than I do on budgets that 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 are smaller than mine. Right. Like, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And those are the kind of people that you just feel sorry or bad for because you're like, hey, man, I know you don't have the things that go along with what it needs to maintain that lifestyle. So it more so be like they they you know for a fact they're making less than you in the sense of like obviously contract wise or whatnot. And then on top of that, they're living a lifestyle that they should not be living because of the amount of money they're making. But they're living more so for the Joneses. Just because you on TV and you on the special team that you just saw them playing, don't mean that they got it. They still trying to make it. But I can say this as a grown man with children and very honest with myself, right? And everybody and a lot of people got to be real honest with themselves. If you spend your whole life to try to make it to this top and, you know, and once you get to the Mount Olympics, it's a lot of money there. When you get there, it's hard 
not to be patient once you get that real check or that real contract. And you young. You never been in a position like if you wanna if you want that game, that uh that new Madden, you had to wait for like Christmas or birthday or something. You can get it right now. If you want those shoes, you had to wait till your mama got paid or somebody was gracious uh, enough to get you those shoes. You can get well, it right well, now. Or you can that's get the thing, right? A lot of times not only have you never been in that position, right? But no one around you has. <laughs> right. You know, so you you enter this this state where you like and they talk about it in the chapter. I love that we keep getting to go back to the chapter right. of the youth that is a place to go back to. Now you find yourself trusting your advisors more than the people around you. Mm, that's tough one there. And, and then, like, you know, I hate to get back to the race thing again, but that's a part of the conveyor belt. You got to understand that. Like, the people who own the, the conveyor belt are white. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah, yeah, because they control the industry. It's a sports yeah. industrial complex. You got to get over that real fast. Yeah. You know, I'm glad I went yeah. to West Virginia, got exposed a little bit. I feel like I understand, like, how to, like, just speak all languages. You know, I don't even see color no more. Right. But I understand it. I know who I am. Right, you know, I I recognize who, what it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like the owners of the belt, you know, might not look like you, and you have to understand what that means. Like, you know, they talk about it in, in the chapter about how you know, you know, you, you might not want to speak out too much. Like, you might not want to do anything to, to, to call the fuss or be labeled a a, a trouble. You know, make it on the belt. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey man, in the book, let me read this quote. It says, by the time they reach the NBA, the NFL, or Major League Baseball, black athletes have put themselves on an intellectual self-check. You don't even have to guard them. They'll miss the shot. Hope you enjoyed. Please click the subscribe button to whatever podcast platform you're listening to. And remember to stay tuned in, stay learning, and keep reading.